welcome to the For Her Empire podcast. I'm your host, Abby Moucher. And in this podcast, we address the personal and the business issues that female entrepreneurs face in their day-to-day lives. My guest today is the lovely Deborah Latsunji. Hi, Deborah. Hey, Abby. How are you? <laughs> Hi. So uh, Deborah is a writer. Uh, an award-winning poet. She's also an activist, a public speaker, and the author of the book, Unleashing Your Innovative Genius, High School Redesign. And today's podcast is a bit interesting because we're, we're going to address one of the more um, societal issues here. So we're going to talk about how to navigate activism and education. Um, I got that right so far, right? <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So um, just introduce yourself and tell us a bit more about you. Yes, of course. So first, I'd love to say thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm very excited to have this conversation <laughs> with you. I'm coming to you guys from the state of Delaware in the United States. And uh, one of the biggest words that I use to define the, the impact that I make in terms of my book, the different ventures that I've started and the organizations that I'm a part of is my core value. And that isn't being an igniter. That just means that I see myself as an unstoppable creator who works together to bring communities together, to listen to each other, to work together, to really collaborate and empower themselves and their individual ventures and community ventures to create something that is better than what currently exists. And so that may mean disrupting the current system or completely reimagining it, like the the education system. Oh, you want to like redesign the entire education system? Oh, for sure. I've seen that there are so many different ways that we can navigate through it in a much better method that will actually enrich students beyond the memorization and the constant anxiety over testing and being perfect. And so I think that that's one of the many ways that we can start to see a shift in the education system. So students are so much more open to loving it and liking learning and then wanting to be in a community where they can share their ideas without being judged. Okay. Okay. So, um, so, um, what ideas um, do you have about um, how to really change the educational system? Because admittedly, the educational system is based less on what you know and, and more what you can cram before the exam starts. And it's, it's not like the questions, they actually test your knowledge anyway. Just just test what you read in the book, word for word. So exactly. how do you want to change yeah. it? I think that's one of... I think one of the ways to combat memorization and that strategy of students having to cram topics and knowledge before exams is to just encourage people to be critical thinkers instead and to focus on why things are happening instead of just filling in responses for answers and then introducing experiential learning to the classroom where students get to be at the forefront of their learning experiences as opposed to just having a teacher guide them every single time. I do agree that there's definitely a place for a teacher, but in our current education system, it's one where they give all the commands and they give all the directions for students as opposed to letting them really guide their own process and discover how they really like to learn. Yeah, so um, I did not imagine that overhauling an educational system would be easy (laughs) or that there'll be zero (laughs) resistance. So like... How can we, like, I guess, slowly implement this? Like, what's the way forward? One of the biggest ways forward is through the curriculum. I think that it may seem daunting at first, but it's honestly the most compatible way in this 2020 to start, you know, chipping away at the current system that we have. And one of the biggest examples of that is in how people are in the during the, with the time that's going on right now with the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, protesting the systemic racism, people are taking down statues. But as an education activist, 
we're trying to push that that idea further by saying we need to also take them from our history books and reframe the narrative and tell tell students who they really were because our history books are incredibly whitewashed they don't tell the full story and tearing down monuments is great it's fine we should definitely should have been doing that in the past it shouldn't have been created in the first place but we also have to look at the history books and see what narrative is being told about how they played a part in history and all the stories that haven't been told because of the way the way how whitewashed our curriculum is yeah so now um, that part about the monument and change and changing that um, narrative in the book because there's this saying that that um, winners write history. So, and and given that America is on its own a very um, white white centric, so to speak, and and they tend to pretty much control everything. So when we say let's remove this uh, monuments from the history book and let's actually tell that you you were racists, that you actually kept slave, you. You violated so many human rights, and uh, the things you did were incredibly awful. For some um, section of the citizens in the country, they might feel like their culture is being stripped away. So now, how would you address that? I think it starts by addressing the history that's been told to them, that tells them that that's their culture. I think what you're pointing at is the idea of Southern pride. And even when we're oh, talking yeah, about one. the Confederate <laughs> flag, the, the Confederate flag that they put on their trucks and everything, they are that Confederate um, section was only around for three years. So they can't really say that that's a part of their culture and their history when it wasn't even a prominent part of American history. And then another point to that argument is, why would you want to stand behind something that represents racism and hate and just prejudice and all this torture like why would you want to be behind something that is actively you know hurting people who live today and it's just the argument that they try to give back is that oh it's my southern pride it's my southern pride like if it was southern pride then it would be humility it wouldn't be about tearing people down and trying to prove yourself to someone as some macho personality it wouldn't be trying to bring your guns in here and trying to you know hurt people and so when I, whenever people say that that the monuments and all that are a part of their culture i'm like then you need to redefine what culture means to you because that, that culture that you claim as your own means that you see black people as degenerate human beings and that you see them as people who are less than and that's not the america that we should be living in right now yeah so now um, i know i have to question now the first part is um um, let's start with um, willful ignorance, the part in which um, people of, of, of a more um, privileged um, race in America, typically the whites, um, do not, and I'm putting this in quotes, see racism. <laughs> <laughs> so like, and, and then uh, until, until that video of George Floyd went out, many people did not really believe that racism was an actual issue in America. And which is interesting because that's not the first video to ever go out. It's just the, and that's not even the first video where black lives have literally died in the hands of police, but it just felt like the more um, visceral because for minutes you literally watch someone's life drain out of your eye, out of them. So you have to like this, I cannot see um, racism. Or I, I did not see the difference. You have to like wonder like, so now for people who, who still um, think that this is an isolated incident or who think that this whole thing was um, like just um, pushed out of, sort of like you're making it more dramatic than it really is, um, people who do not see it, like what's, what's the solution to this to make them actually see that, um, no, this, this, this is like a, a, a day-to-day thing, this happens. I tell them to just look at their communities because that's one of the biggest places that you can start to see systemic racism. For example, with the term gentrification, when 
white investors bring in bigger companies like Whole Foods or Acme or just a market that is mainly based for white citizens into a neighborhood, bringing the prices up for the housing for, you know, African-Americans, Black people, Latinx people who can't afford that, that is just the continued prevalence of gentrification and racism. And so when you are pushing these lower income families out of these neighborhoods by raising the prices, you're telling them you have to go find somewhere else to live. And in most cases, when we look at those communities that they end up living in, they don't have the best food markets. They're usually living in food deserts where there isn't access to fresh vegetables and fruits and whatnot. And there's probably higher rates of crime because, you know, there's kind of this mentality in this community where you have to just survive. And, you know, Americans are always saying, you know, just pull yourself up by your your bootstraps. But how do you pull yourself up by your bootstraps when you don't have boots to begin with? You know, that's commonly the conversations that we're having in terms of access and equity and resources, when you are actively taking away things that benefit a community, and then you try to claim that right, racism is an isolated incident, you're just, you're, it's almost like you're living two different lives. You know, you're thinking these with two different minds, but not seeing that you're, you're the problem. And so that system is not just perpetuated in the environment and our communities. It's also in healthcare. You know, the black mothers are five, four, four times more likely to die in childbirth than white mothers. And, you know, that just comes in terms of the disparities that happen with the medical practices that exist, the different textbooks that they're learning from. And even with the ideas that they're telling med students where apparently if you have more melanin, if you're black, that your skin is tougher. That's absolute nonsense. But it's something that they're teaching their med students in their classrooms so that when they're, when black patients come in, they misdiagnose them and they tell them, you know, you're completely fine. But then if that black patient goes to somebody who looks like them, who goes to a black doctor, they'll maybe find like a carotid artery or a a blood clot and that other doctor just decided to overlook it. And so it's not just an isolated incident at all. It continues to happen on a daily basis, whether that's racial profiling with the police being killed at the mercy of it and being recorded and memefied over and over and over again until we have to convince people that these injustices are happening. And then it's also in our workplaces because, you know, if you even look at the the big banks in America, even the big executive companies, how many of them are black? How many executives do you have that actually have black equity that own that in these companies? You know, that's just another continuation of racism. If we don't even have the generational wealth to show that we are quote unquote moving forward and progressing, you can't say that racism is an isolated incident. Okay, that makes sense. Now let's bring this to the to the to the educational system. Um I don't know if it was this year or last year, um, in which um a black student was bullied. I don't know if it was this year or last year, maybe the year before. But then the teacher, when the black student actually like fought back, or I guess defended themselves, but the what 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 was in the article said fought back anyway. Um the teacher punished the black student and not the actual um and another police. I mean, yes, you fought in class, so I guess both of you are to a degree responsible for actually fighting in class. But then um, teachers tend to put the blame on the colored person. And so, and then, which is which is interesting because by doing that, the other students are sort of um, having this idea that they're always this person is always the bad guy. This person is always at fault. My actions, mm-hmm. I am not responsible for them. They pushed me to this. Uh, they did this. So how how is the education system, one, contributing to causing more um, racial issues and two, um, solving the racial issues if possible? How is, how is education really helping out with this? So right now, education isn't helping out with solving these issues because to your first question, one of the biggest problems in terms of you know, discipline issues and determining who gets the punishment is that there's actually statistics specifically for my state and there's ones for all the others, but for Delaware specifically, black girls are four times more likely 
to be disciplined severely, whether that's being suspended, being, you know, um, expelled, being sent to the principal's office, then white girls. And in most cases, they try to say that they try to normalize black misbehavior as the behavior. And that becomes a very big problem in terms of education, because instead of, you know, teaching kids how they should be doing things and not disciplining them with suspensions, they're missing days of school. And so they're not getting that enrichment. They're spending more time outside of school, you know, thinking to themselves, what is the real purpose of this institution if it's not seeing me as someone who is equal, where I can't even see myself in the history books because only the white stories matter. And then as we continue to go through an education, you just get this continuous message that, you know, you're less than or that you don't matter. What does that say to the students who are, quote unquote, acting out? And then the disciplinary actions that they decide to take are just completely out of proportion. And they don't actually work towards bettering the students. Instead, they actually work towards punishing them and showing them who has the power. I think that's one of the most hurtful things that education is continuing to do. And I went to a middle school that was predominantly black and Latino. And that's what you saw. You know, there were so many more fights in this institution because, you know, there wasn't as many disciplinary procedures that were actually working. There were so many more suspensions, so many more expulsions. But then when you look at who's really behaving and how they're responding to the treatment, not the treatment, to the behaviors that you decide to, you know, the punishments that you decide to give them, in most cases, it's not the suspensions and it's not the expulsions that help them to grow and learn. It's them sitting down and examining, you know, thinking for themselves, what did I do wrong? How can I do better? What steps can I take to, you know, show that I'm truly sorry, that I've truly learned from what I'm doing? And how can I move forward in my education having learned from this experience? Those are not the conversations that people are having, but they need to happen so that students understand that even though I may have done something wrong, even though I may have done something that was incredibly immature, I'm still a human that is growing and learning and making mistakes. And that's something that shouldn't be treated so heinously. So like, like what, what you just explained now uh, about instead of just giving out suspension and giving out um, expulsions and, and sometimes actually um, really being, being dragged roughly, which I, I would just call physical assault, honestly. So um, most, um, once again, I'm not in America, so my information is solely based on the news, on, on, on videos and articles I see, so I might be wrong in this. And, and the... the the justification that's really a, a really wrong word to use here but the rationale behind that really aggressive treatment is that they respond better to this that um that we, we have to be more aggressive with our punishment we have we have to um because uh, because apparently we are more violent and we respond more to um violent tactics uh, so what's your response to that i think that if you even look at how you're supposed to handle having difficult conversations, in most cases, someone's going to respond so much better with them if you're gentle, if you're understanding, if you come from a place of wanting to listen and learn rather than wanting to instigate, you know, confrontation and feelings of hatred. And that's the same kind of approach that we could take towards making, creating these quote punishments or really places for people to learn so that they can move forward. And I think that if you take a much harsher approach towards, you know, these offenses, it's not going to make students think, oh, I should never do this again. It's going to agitate them and think, well, that's unfair. I shouldn't have gotten such a harsh thing. I'm going to show them that. And, you know, it's just this continuous cycle of them trying to prove themselves because the system has long told them, you know, these are the punishments that you get. We don't really care if you move forward. We don't care if you get better. We're just trying to put you in a box in this place so you don't disrupt the learning processes of other students. And that should never be the focus, especially if we're trying to create a community a community, a sense of community within, with, between students, because that means you are trying to create accountability as well. Because if a student is being, you know, punished for something, and the punishment does fit the crime, whether you don't ask to be really, really thoughtful and to think about what they've done, then when they come back in society, it's almost like when 
with the prison system that we're trying to, you know, completely redesign. When they come back into the classroom, they have a sense of this is what I did wrong. This is what I need to do to contribute yes. to the social yes. contract of the classroom. And this is how I can move forward in the future. And then those classmates who saw the, the, pro- the problem that went down and saw the yeah. punishment, they'll see them and they'll want to embrace them back into the classroom because they see that they've learned from what they did, but they don't want them to be punished for that for the rest of their educational career yes. because that will just stifle their learning and not encourage them to continue to wonder and to understand that, yes, you will make mistakes, but there is a way to learn from them. Yes, yes. I honestly think the, the exposure thing, um, it has to be a, a quite severe issue for you to actively strip um, someone's education from them if it's if it's if it's and most of the time it's just like a ridiculous thing like you're standing up for yourself from a bully and then you just somehow get expelled and your education is taken away from you and then you can't really apply to another school because that is quite literally on your record that doesn't really help mm-hmm. anyone and so i like that you, you talked about you know overhauling educational system and talking about starting by changing the curriculum but now um the punishment system um, as, as we're overhauling the educational system, where does this, um, at what point does this change come in? I think in terms of the curriculum and then in terms of the punishment, how those two converge is in the this policies and the kind of ideas and the social contracts that set forth by the students and the classmates and the teachers from day one. I think that if you are creating a classroom culture that is focused on people growing together and people learning together and people trying to enrich themselves as a whole, then you'll have less of those instances where you have to do punishments that involve, you know, the real reflection or going towards, you know, just taking moments to think about what you've done. Because if you create a culture where people are benefiting from a social contract, then they're less likely to want to do things that could lead to expulsion or want to lead to suspension or just a confrontation in general. When you create a platform and a space where students feel that their voices are heard and not one over the other based on the color of your skin or based off of what's in the curriculum, then you create a real full circle, you know, education where people understand that my voice does matter. It does have its importance. And this is a place and platform where it can be shared without judgment. Okay. Okay. So now this, this next question, I'm, I'm not sure if you'll be able to answer it. Um, since it's more of a more, um, the more um, legal political side of things. So it was like, what exactly would it, would it take um, to actually um, implement this change curriculum? Um, I guess for private school, that could be easily implemented, I guess, since it's, it's private owned. But for a, for a public, for a federal school, for a change of curriculum, which there will be um, lots of uh, people against it, especially those who are privileged, because there is this thing that if you're privileged, then equality all of a sudden seems like you've been punished. So now you, by changing mm. this curriculum, you, those who, are, who have been privileged from this would feel like they're being put down. So there will obviously be a lot of resistance for a sort of change, but what would it take in an ideal world for this to be implemented? I think that we can draw examples from one of the biggest superpowers in education, and that is Finland. They actually took a move this year towards taking away all of their subjects, and I can imagine that they they were met with a lot of pushback, but they're trying to move towards performance-based learning. And so I think in America, I don't know if we'd ever do something so drastic all at once <laughs> if we wanted to work towards the tiny, you know, I mean, it's honest, honestly, that's... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I look like at your current system. president. But if we want to work towards... <laughs> 
Oh, yeah. <laughs> if we want to work towards the building block of getting real progress, it would have to take legislation in all of the different states and then getting a secretary of education who's actually focused on student outcomes as opposed to just filling her pocket. Because let's face it, oh, Betsy DeVos is not in the right I, used, I forgot about her and, now. <laughs> oh, God. I am so excited to welcome the next secretary of education. I actually am working on writing a letter to the new one, but she she's not focused on student outcomes at all in that goes in terms to all the other secretaries of education of all the different states because she's setting a precedent for herself. She's showing, you know, other secretaries of education what she cares about. And that's why we keep seeing education being um, put on the back burner in terms of the budgets being slashed and funds being taken away. But if we get real legislation towards having students have the choice, you know, of deciding what gets into the curriculum, what we're actually teaching them, then you'll have not just more motivation from the students, but also the teachers, because they'll be able to be flexible with their students and create that community culture that I was talking about before. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So let's talk, let's talk a bit, we're going to like some pretty heavy stuff so far. <laughs> so let's dial it down a bit. Let's talk about your book a bit. Yeah. So um, what exactly inspired you to write about, about particularly about innovation, I guess. What's really, um, like you just like wake up one day and like, educational system reform, like, you know, let's push this. Yeah, I think one of the biggest motivations for me in terms of writing the book was there were quite a few life experiences that I went through to begin oh. with. There wasn't just one in- oh, isolated like incident that just made me wake up one morning and think, you know, <laughs> I think it needs to completely change. But I think one of the earliest things that I can point to was actually the shirt that I'm wearing. Uh, oh. I went to this design sprint for this organization called Dual School, and the whole entire focus was creating a kind of like a second school where people would go to um, in the middle of their school day to just spend three hours focused on whatever they were interested in. And to me, that idea was really intriguing because I'd never been given the autonomy beyond 30 minutes to really do something that I cared about beyond, you know, doing homework, doing schoolwork, stuff like that. And so when we were working towards ideating this, we really just went into this process of mock mentors. And so it was just an adult figure who sat with you, who talked to you, what problems you were interested in solving. And so the person who I sat with, her name was Maggie. And I actually talk about this story at the end of my book because it's a chapter on how to find a mentor. And Yay. I think that this, this experience really just completely shaped my, um, my approach to this problem. And so what I sat down with her to talk about was what I really felt was wrong with not just education, but in life in general. She was like, what is a problem that you're currently facing right now that you want to solve, that you're really invested in finding a solution towards? And to me, I really just talked to her for, I think, 15 minutes straight about the problem with my math class. Because for me, I was a freshman at <laughs> that time. Oh and I, did not, I didn't hate math, but the math teacher that I had was focused on teaching math in one way. And I was just like, this can't be the only way to learn math, you know? And a lot of students weren't having successful outcomes. It was math that I had learned before in primary, in middle school. I don't know what it's called in Kenya, but it was just before I got to high school, um, that was the math that I was dealing with. And so I thought to myself, this shouldn't be difficult. I just did it last year. But she would just make the, the curriculum and the test in a way where even if you wanted to ask the question, you didn't know what the question was to ask because <laughs> it wasn't open to oh, you know, wow. really teaching us beyond that. So we couldn't even ponder on how to be better because we just simply weren't taught on how. And so as a frustrated 15 year old in that system, I thought to myself, you know, this is really, this really is tough. And I don't know if I can move forward with an education system that tells me that this is the only way to learn math. Mm -hmm. And then I experienced it again, sophomore year with biology. The biology teacher really made me realize, and it wasn't just him, it was the class and the, the choices that he decided to make in terms of not building a community culture. I realized that for the next two years, I didn't want to just sit in classes and worry about tests and quizzes that I really wanted to have 
something that I was benefiting from my education and getting real values from. And so that was when I started to supplement my education because my STEM-based high school wasn't going to give me the topics that I needed to really be interested in. They weren't going to teach me the black history that I truly cared about and wanted to discover and explore. And they certainly weren't going to encourage me to do experiential learning. And so I really found those places to supplement my, my learning experience from the outside. But in redesigning the education system, I really push and focus on creating these resources and providing these pipelines for students to do that during school hours so that it's so much more enriching and fun. And they don't have the feeling that I felt when I was in school thinking, you know, I just have to get all this homework done and all this stuff for my regular yes, school. And then yes, I get to focus yes. on the things that I'm actually passionate about during my downtime. And so that was something that was a real shift for me because I realized that the education system that I was battling with was very remote, very robotic, and there was no sense of life in it. And it was ironic because biology is a study of life, but yeah. it was dead. <laughs> and so I realized that I felt revived and I felt really, you know, alive when I was doing things that were experiential and focusing on the things that really woke me up and gave me, you know, hope for my education. Yeah. Okay. So, um, how many high school students actually like think the same way you do? Like, I don't imagine somebody just like goes biology, math. Yep. Overhaul the entire system. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, so like, have you, have you met other um, sort of high school students who can, I guess, can relate and they're all for like, you know, let's change this right now. Have you met others like you? Oh, for sure. I think that's the most comforting thing for me has been realizing that I'm not the sole person in front of this. And I I, ne- I don't think that there should ever be a sole person in front mm-hmm. of a movement to make such a big change. And so it has been so comforting to find that there are other people who are education activists as well, who think this way, who want to improve education, who want to completely redesign it. And we've ultimately created a community where we can talk about different ways that our states can move forward with legislation, like I was talking about earlier, and ultimately how to change the cultures in our existing classrooms so that people feel like they're welcome and they, they can come to these spaces and really share their ideas and be heard. So, and what about students who um, do not see anything wrong with the current educational um, system, either because they are used to it or it, it sort of favors them? So, um, you might, it might, it might seem like you're speaking like a completely different language that they don't understand. When you're talking about, you no, know, the, the system should be this way and this is more better. And then they're like, what's wrong with this one? So, so how, how do you like connect with them? Because technically you do yeah. need to convince them for this change to, to be implemented. So in order for us to encourage people that change actually needs to happen, we have to show them that there's a problem with the existing system. And so if they can't see that there's a problem with their education system, they're not going to want to make changes because to them, there's nothing to be improved. And so the first step, honestly, for us is exposing the problems that exist. And it's not hard because there's so many to choose from. (laughs) But once we show them those problems, that's just the truth. Once we show them those problems, they start to understand, you know, this is horrible. Like my education system, my education experience could be so much better than what it is right now. And I want to work towards actually getting an education system and an education experience that benefits me and then also benefits maybe my siblings or uh, my different neighbors and cousins that are coming coming after me so that when they're talking about what they're going through with education, they're solving a completely new problem that we haven't even heard of because we've taken the time to tackle the ones that currently exist. Okay, so now I I understand um, how you would address the students. Let's go about how you would address the teachers who were also taught the same way. Who, who also sees this as the norm, as this is the way to teach. So now, how, how do you um, tell them that, that you could be teaching them in a different way or you could teach others in a different way without making them look like you're telling them how to do their jobs because that would just annoy them anyway. Yeah. yeah. 
Mm-hmm. I think the most refreshing part of teachers in general, and I've got, I've had some really good teachers. I don't want to say the experiences that I had with my math and biology <laughs> teacher just completely ruined uh-huh. it for me. That's not true. I definitely had a lot of really inspiring and enriching teachers that showed me that they also agreed that education needs to change. And you can usually tell by the teachers who've been in the practice for a couple of years. And so one of the closest teachers that I have is my AP biology teacher, and she taught me scientific research as well. So that was a class where we really actually learned how to think. She didn't focus on grades because she just decided to pass everyone. And I think that the benefit with that was people stopped caring about their grades because they knew that they, there was no reason to worry about it. And they actually focused on you know, what was being taught in scientific research. And some people may look down on that method and say, well, you just gave everyone an A. But it was a half credit course. Everyone had to take it. It was weighted by the same of a basic class. And so it wasn't that big of a deal. The whole point that she was trying to get across to us was that I don't care about your grades. I don't care about the number that you put on paper. I care about what's in your brain. You know, I care about what's in here, what you're thinking about, how you're processing the information that I'm giving you. And so teachers like that, they really understand that there's a need for there to be a change. But then the newer teachers, those are the ones who usually come in with the most light and they, they want to make a difference to begin with. That's usually why they go into teaching. But they, I feel like they don't get the experience just yet until they start teaching of what changes need to be made. And so those are the teachers that I often find myself needing to convince. And when they hear it from a student's perspective, it's entirely different. There's almost like a magic that comes to it when you're talking to someone from someone who is, you know, experiencing the education exactly. They actually start to listen. And so I come to them from a place of understanding and warmth and wanting to relay, you know, my opinions on how we can make a difference and how we can change the existing um, system and actually, you know, make an effort to solve the problems that exist. And that's where they're usually the most receptive when they're hearing it from a place of, I'm not here to attack you. I'm here to tell you what problems exist so we can work together to solve them. And these are the ways that we can do that. Okay, so now I got curious about, about your teacher that gave everyone a pass. Wouldn't that mean that there were some who were lazy and were like, ah, I'm going to pass anyway. Wouldn't that oh, sort sure, of like but- bringing like laziness into the, the classroom? Yeah, for sure. There was definitely laziness even in that class, but the whole entire message that she was trying to get across, and I think that this should be more of a push in every factor of every class, you know, regardless of the level. I think she was trying to say to us, this is your education and you decide how you're going to run it. You know, if you want to be lazy, if you don't want to put in the work, you're the one who's going to have to deal with the consequences of that. I'm not the one who has to deal with the consequences of it. I'm here to give you the knowledge and the information that you need and create a platform where you can really explore the ideas that you're really passionate about or the interests that you are curious about. But if you're just going to sit there, be a bump on a log and do nothing, you're the one who's really getting the detrimental side of it. Because at the end of the day, the grades and the numbers don't matter. What you get out of the education system, what you get from the value system, the conversations that you've had and the different values that you've been able to take out of it, those are the things that really matter. Okay. So now, what's your advice for other high, sc- for other high schoolers? Let's say, um, okay, so the, the education system there and here is a bit different. So I think you guys call those in their first year um, freshmen? Mm-hmm. Okay, okay, okay. After freshman, it's what? What's the second year called? Sophomore. Sophomores. <laughs> okay. And the third year is called? <laughs> juniors. I'm guessing that they're seniors next. And then seniors. <laughs> seniors. Okay. So what's your advice for like um, high school freshmen who, who are getting into high school for the first time? They've, they've probably had um, uh, just a shitty um, middle school education. Your teacher literally not teaching you, but telling you. So now you're going to come to high school and deal with that same stuff, but like on a harder level. So what's your advice for them? 
So I think the biggest advice for high school freshmen that I could give is throw out all of the ideas that people have told you about high school because they're wrong in most cases. And you have to explore this journey for yourself. And I think that my book can serve as a really good guide. But for the most part, when you're a freshman, the biggest thing you should be focusing on is exploration. You know, exploring your ideologies, your friends' ideologies, your parents' ideologies, what ideas have been crafted around you that make you think a certain way and why do you think that way? So I think that if they're in an environment where the content is harder, where the teachers are maybe a little bit more difficult than middle school, that's a matter of mindset shift. You know, there's a new flexibility that comes into that. And they have to start thinking why they have to learn these things and to what purpose, to what extent does this add value to their lives? Okay. Um, so I'll ask a question but before I ask it. Are you still in high school? No, I just graduated. So I'm a rising freshman now in college. Uh, Thank you. <laughs> okay. Now, now I have two questions. <laughs> and this, this is coming from a point of deep ignorance. Please bear with me. Once again, I'm not American. I've never been there. And given the way things are going, I don't want to be there. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, so um, the way high schools are portrayed in, in, in movies and series mm. and actual high school, I didn't say it. No. <laughs> I, <laughs> not at all. <laughs> There's not like hallway with some like bell ringing and everybody like from like tiny clicks and some cafeteria where you sit down like in a box in a table and your friends are like, oh my God, Jenna. <laughs> like that's not there. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we still have like hallways and bells and different social groups, but it's not as dramatic as the movies make them out to be. I feel disappointed right now. <laughs> I feel disappointed <laughs> right now. Wait, and are the cafeteria food as terrible as, as it looks like in movies? Oh, yes. It's terrible all around. That is a true fact. It's not good <laughs> at all. <laughs> at least I know something. And then um, people like throw parties every single Friday. Like, oh, my God, I have a party this Friday. Like, my parents are not home. Like, does that happen all the time? I think that there's still party culture for sure, but it's not as serious as maybe college because I think that that's what college is notorious for a lot of parties. And if people are partying in high school, they have to, you know, budget all the time that they're spending studying for standardized testing exams, doing sports. And so partying definitely exists in high school, but it's not, there isn't <laughs> as much pressure to go to a high school party than probably in college. Uh, have you been to college yet or are you going to start after this whole COVID thing is over? Yeah, I'm starting in August. Oh, okay. I guess after you start, I guess I get to ask you if college looks like it is in movies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I want to know about this whole sorority thing. It seems quite pointless from my end. It's like, what do you need this for? So I want to know like why and why does it exist? What benefit do you get out of it? And like this whole chuck, 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 chuck. <laughs> it's actually there. <laughs> I think I'm not planning on joining a sorority because I'm personally a little bit terrified of Greek life. I think it's very cultish. And my family doesn't like it either, so (laughs) I don't intend on, you know, getting that Greek-like experience. But from what I've seen, there's a lot of peer pressure. They really push, like, sisterhood and brotherhood. And it's just another social club that people want to be a part of. Oh. Once again, movies have disappointed me. Like, (laughs) expectations for this reality was so down there. Disappointed (laughs) right now. And what other other, um, portrayal of high school life and college life on TV, would you say is like false? I think everybody goes into high school thinking that they're going to have like a high school musical experience <laughs> where people are singing in the hallways and teachers are just like, you don't have to turn in your homework. 
go to the basketball game, stuff like that. And that's not uh, true at all. I, I mean, for the most part, teachers are not, there, there are some teachers who are laid back and more understanding, but no one's going to tell you to not do your homework. You know, if anything, mm-hmm. high school is where people are going to push you the most that, you know, homework is important and it definitely is. It has its purpose. But in high school movies, they're just like, it's almost as if work doesn't exist. And that's- yeah, it's like, oh my God, I forgot my assignments. He wouldn't care. Uh, and, okay, <laughs> and, and since we are, we are on the topic of like American movies, well, I guess, I guess for you, it's just movies since you are in America anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to call American movies because I'm not there. And uh, this ridiculous culture of, of students seducing their lecturer, their teacher for, for an assignment, that actually exists because it's not like sexual like a sexual assault in the making and it's like very un- unhealthy think, power dynamics going on in there oh yeah i definitely see that in almost every high school show there is the, te- yeah. the students are always threatening the teachers and it's usually in private school movies so i don't think that it happens as prevalently in public school because public school teachers don't make enough money to be threatened <laughs> and that's almost really sad in a way but the private school teachers i think that's probably where they get more fear because I went to a private school but that was only from like kindergarten when I was really young at five to when I was nine in the fourth grade so I didn't really experience it when we were getting older because I didn't go to private school anymore but I imagine that that mainly happens at private schools and not the public ones ah so it does to a degree mayhaps exist huh. American movies have once again filled me wow <laughs> Like all all the ideas I had in my head, it like just flowing away. And oh yeah, since <laughs> you're here, I chill is like I chill is an actual thing in high school. Oh yeah, yeah, they're still cheerleaders. They're not as catty, but they're definitely cheerleaders in high schools. And I guess the cheer culture is different depending on which high school you go to. Mine was mainly STEM based, and our football team wasn't any good. And that really depends. <laughs> that really makes or breaks. Okay, how first of all, if you're listening to this, she, she's sorry for saying that. <laughs> no, you Say said that they were not any good. Yeah, I mean, America. My American for American football in particular. My high school football team was not. It just it wasn't it. And so the cheer team wasn't, didn't have as much things to be excited about because we weren't winning any games and people weren't attending. So there was no audience hype. There was no encouragement from anyone else besides themselves and the marching oh band. God, so, depressing. <laughs> yeah. So it depends on the high school football team, honestly. And they're usually the sports team that gets the most funding, regardless of how good they are. Oh, whoa, really? Yeah. Why? If, if you should say that, why are you getting funded? That's the question we ask all the time. Oh. Usually it's the high school football team because the parents usually, um, it depends on the type of school also, but for my school, you had to take an exam and everything like that. So you really can't get into the school for football. And so maybe that's why the emphasis isn't as prevalent. But for the most part, high school for football programs get the most money simply because they're the most popular and maybe that's where the most potential they see is. And they don't want to invest in other sports. Oh. But I'm not a sports expert, so I don't want to come from a place of knowing everything because <laughs> I definitely don't. But that's just how it happened in my high school. Uh, okay, okay. And um, do you personally like mentor other students or, or you sort of connect them to other mentors? Yeah, so that's a perfect question because it really segues into the social venture that I started called the Student Leadership Initiative Program. And our sole focus, one of our biggest focuses, is peer mentorship. We focus on community building, helping students understand the professional skills, like how to be a great storyteller, public speaking, how to articulate and advocate for the things that they care about. And so with the Student Leadership Initiative, or SLIP for short, 
the slippers are the mentees. And we have this whole hierarchy of leadership where we have a senior advisory board, a junior mentor team, and then we have the underclassmen that are being mentored. Okay. Okay. And, and, uh, in terms of like implement, is, is this already, it's already um, happening or is it's in the works? So it's currently happening. We've been an organization for the past two years. We have a founding chapter in Delaware and then one in Tennessee that's going to start next year. And the really big goal is for 2023 to have a national, you know, slip organization where there's a slip chapter, at least three slip chapters in every single state and maybe even internationally as well. Oh, okay, okay, okay. And uh, apart from Maggie, um, is there anyone else who sort of like inspired you? Yeah, I I have a mentor right now. His name is Rich, and he's his, been his name is Rich. Inspirations. Yes, Rich. I think it's short for Richard. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> Otherwise, that's a weird name to have. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's his nickname for um, the longer term of Richard. But Rich is what I call him. That's how I've gotten to know him, and he really helped me in terms of crafting my first keynote because I started my book tour in 2019 before my book even published in February of 2020. And I had no idea what I wanted my keynote to be about. You know, the school kind of reached out to me. They were like, we loved the article that was written about you because there was one in the local newspaper from Delaware and it ended up reaching someone in Philadelphia. And they were like, we want you to come to our school and give this presentation to our students. And I was absolutely gobsmacked. I was just like, I've never, you know, spoken all by myself on a stage. I've been talking in choirs. I've been organizing events, but I've never had, you know, just myself with my ideas beyond like poetry to talk about to students for half an hour. Mm. And so I was kind of scrambling. I was really worried, but I really just went to my mentor rich and he really talked me through the process he gave me really great ideas for you know what i should talk about how to engage students and i ended up talking about the failure story because i think for students they they i didn't want them to see me as just another high school student who was better than them who wrote a book that was not yes, the image that yes, i wanted to yes. portray i wanted to meet them at their level and say to them you know even though i've written this book even though i may have made such a, a grand accomplishment that seems out of proportion for you you know it's honestly the failure story that connects us all because we all experience failure. We all go through moments that we don't think will happen, things that don't go as planned. But I tell them how I turned that failure into fortitude or grit, the perseverance, the real understanding of what the situation was into ending up writing this book and not being defeated with the education experience that I've been given. Okay, so we're going to talk about your book in, in, a, in a minute, but um, a, a little question to that. Is there, are there any um, misconceptions people have about you or maybe um your classmates have about about what you do i think a lot of people think that i spend all of my time working and that i don't have any moments of fun and that i'm just a workaholic all the time and i think a part of that i mean a part of that is from my nigerian background so my family is nigerian i think work being a workaholic is unfortunately like the culture just grinding until you have no more steam left and i have had moments like that where i don't you know, spend time to actually have fun. But I've realized in the past couple of years, especially in launching the book tour and meeting more people, expanding my network, that it's so incredibly important to have the self-care, to have moments where you're just having spontaneous FaceTime calls with your friends, to take the time to really, you know, spend time as a teenager and not grow up too fast. And that's probably one of the biggest misconceptions that people have about me, that I have grown up too fast and that I don't have any fun. But I can assure you that I do. <laughs> okay, first of all, my fellow Nigerian. What, 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 what? <laughs> Second of all, I, I guess, I guess, do you like come across as like this very um, serious, strict person? I mean, you, you've been smiling so far, so uh, who knows? <laughs> 
I think to my friends, no, because they've seen both sides of me. They've seen the professional side of me. They've seen the really spontaneous and playful side. And I think the biggest switch in terms of me for understanding how people perceive me was when I went to this summer camp for two weeks. It was at a university in Boston and I didn't bring up the book at all. That was not, I didn't know how to, you know, have that in a regular conversation with people I didn't know. And so I was just, we were on the, on a transportation to get to an event. We were going to like a, a I happened to mention in passing that I'd written a book. And this was after I built a relationship. We talked about where we were from, the different cultures that we have in our states and whatnot. And the girl who was sitting next to me, I still remember her name is Kelsey. She's one of my closest friends. She's like, wait a minute, you wrote a book. And she, she said it so loud that the entire book. Oh, like, no. And I was just like, oh my God. Why would you do that to me? Because I didn't know like how to talk about the fact that I had done something like that in a way that wasn't obnoxious, but she asked me the question and I answered it. And so I'm now learning how to navigate that because being an author is a part of my identity and it's not something that is, um, you know, rude or prideful or anything because the whole point, the whole reason why I wrote the book was to empower people. It wasn't a book that was just about me or my autobiography or anything like that. It was a book that was supposed to add purpose and add value to people's lives. And so I'm becoming so much more comfortable with talking about it and using it in daily conversations with um, new people, but it's definitely not the first thing that I bring up. So I kind of create the presence of myself through like humor, relatability, talking about things that matter to me. And then I usually get into the advocacy side of it. And that's usually when the book ends up coming up. Okay. Okay. So you just mentioned um, um, how, how do your friends and your family um, sort of uh, relate to you both on a personal level on, on a professional level, so like that sort of balance. Because on one hand, Deborah is my friend or my daughter or my sister. On the other hand, Deborah is also professional. So like, how do they like navigate them? That's two different sides of you. I think I'd love to call one of them onto the podcast and they can <laughs> sure. talk about this further. But the way that I think that they navigate that is by understanding that I am not my work. And I think that's, that's something that I've had to tell myself a lot, that even though I've created this project, even though I've done different ventures, I've written this book, that I am not my book, but rather I am the experiences that I show to people or I exhibit through the different things that I've decided to spend my time on. And I think that's a really humbling thing for myself as well, because I realize that your self-value and your self-worth isn't found in your accomplishments, but rather in the relationships that you build with other people. And so honestly, I think they see me as somebody who is really carefree, down to earth, who is driven, who wants to get things done, and then also wants to bring people together with her and not just be the sole person who is driving the momentum for the change that I want to see. I, I also hope to see you the same way too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, where, you said your book came out in February this year. So um, mm-hmm. where, can, where can somebody um, get a copy of the book? Is it, is it a physical, I've seen, you, I've seen you hold the physical copy. Is there an ebook version as well? Or like how can someone actually get the book? Yeah, so you can get the book, the physical version or the ebook version. And I'm working on the audiobook version this summer, so that'll be out soon. But you can get that on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Walmart. Um, it's not in local bookstores yet because of the current pandemic yeah, that's going yeah, yeah. on. But um, you can get it on Amazon. You can get it on my website, www.debraolatunji.com. And that'll lead you directly to how to purchase it and a couple of articles about me. So you can get it from my personal website. You can get it from Amazon. You can get it from Barnes & Noble. You can get it online. Yeah. So just say, just say the name of the book again. Yeah. So the title of the book is Unleashing Your Innovative Genius High School Redesigned. 
Okay, so unleashing your innovative genius, high school redesign. And um, you've also mentioned your website, um, DebraOlatsunji.com. Um, that's how people can get mm-hmm. the book and I guess um, connect with you or work with you or like ideally. Yes, like, they can also collaborate. Yeah, or collaborate, that's the word. <laughs> I was looking for. So you can, they can get the book and collaborate with you. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. Is there any question I should have asked or something you want to talk about that I've not asked? I guess we could get deeper into the book and what the contents are. I'd love to talk further on that. Okay, sure. So I think one of the biggest questions that I usually get concerning the book is who the book is for. And so I wrote this book thinking about time and space. And that just means that I wanted to realize how relevant it was for me as a student writing about the high school experience as someone who was going through it and then talking to that with students who are currently in education or who are now in college and are reflecting on what they needed from their education experience. And so one of the biggest representation things that I wanted to present was not only that I'm a black woman writing this book, but also a high school student. Because if you look at the array of books in the education space, there are hardly any written by students. And that really baffled me because I, I thought to myself, we're trying to solve a problem and create an education system that works for the consumers of it. And the consumers of it are the students. So essentially we are the, the customers of this business transaction and education very much has become a business if you think it about is. it. And they're not even asking the customers what we like. And so I decided to put that all down in here, not just my perspectives, but the ideas of senators, college students, entrepreneurs, activists, high school students, of course, and college students to really articulate what an education system that is redesigned looks like from a student's perspective and from people who can initiate real change. And so the book is broken into three different parts. Part one is how to conquer in the classroom. Part two is how to retrain your mind. And then part three is how to utilize the outside world. And each and every single chapter has called a call to action that you can take towards your, your life because I realized that the education system that I am advocating for is one that is extremely action oriented. And so I wanted to give my readers ways that they can improve their education experience and make those changes true to their lives right now. Apart from the student reading the book, would you um, recommend it to teachers as well? Or would they be offended by the content? (laughs) Oh, no, I think that even I had a teacher, uh, one of my biggest proofreaders was a teacher, my AP Lang teacher. And I think teachers would definitely benefit from this book because like I said, you know, they're the ones who are serving students. And so hearing the perspective exactly from a student and from students all across the country would benefit them a lot because they would learn different ways that they can, you know, make their classroom more accessible, more of a safe space for people to share their ideas and values. And then they would also understand, you know, how can I make this experience better for my students on an individual level rather than the collective level that my teaching may have taught me to do. And so it teaches teachers, <laughs> it surprisingly teaches teachers how to be better at their profession because it's directly from a student who has experienced so many different experiences with teachers and wants to help them grow. Oh, okay, okay. And um, I, I, I've seen from what you said that um, the dedication was a bit different since most, most people like dedicated to their family or in my case to myself. <laughs> so like, so <laughs> who did dedicate yours to? <laughs> I dedicated the book to my little sister, so I can read that right now. Sure, the dedication sure. page is, for my little sister testimony, who showed me why education has changed, and my future children, for whom, for whom I pray the system will be different. And one of the biggest motivations that I had in writing this book was understanding that the education system that I'm writing about in this book will hopefully look entirely different five years from now, and maybe this will be like in the History Museum or something, I don't know. But we can just continue to refer back to 
the solutions that I bring up in the book to solve the current problems and maybe even solve the new ones because I wrote it from a stance of I don't want my future kids to say to me the same things that I had complaints about. I don't want them to be talking about how their pop quizzes didn't go well or their biology teacher was only one-sided. I don't want those to be the stories that they tell me. Instead, I want them to come to me with brand new problems that I haven't even thought of so that we can towards work towards continuing to make a system better for the new learners that come into the classroom. Oh, nice, nice. Well, I was about to mention that your, your biology and math teacher, like you don't want your sister and future kids to have, them, have somebody like them in their classroom and making them feel like this is the only way to learn something. This is my way or my way. There's, there's, no, there's no other option for you to learn this. It's also interesting because I actually love biology. <laughs> so sorry about that. <laughs> I love biology. The idea of like dissecting a frog was like, yes, ah, love it. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it's just like all your frustrations and all that anger. There's a frog in front of me. Put it in there. Okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Like the worst anger management ever, but it worked. It makes me a little bit squeamy, but. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, um, you, you want to talk more, a bit more about your book or you just uh, want people to like, to um, get more details about the book on the website, which is um, debrolatunji.com. Um, is there a blurb uh, uh, or a, what's it called? A sample, a preview? I mean, if you have any other questions, I can definitely. I know. I, I, yeah, I, I, can I can't think of anything right now. So it's like anything else you want to see that that works. <laughs> yeah, I can read a chapter, uh, not a whole chapter, but I can read a section of okay. chapter seven, hack homework, creating independent studies. And I'll just read the first page of it. Um, page 95, if you're okay. following along. So the quote that opens this chapter is, do your homework and know your facts, but remember that it's passion that persuades. And that's a quote from H. Jackson Brown Jr. And then I continue in my own words, students across the United States mindlessly spend hours in a stone cold building. Some end up bleeding in a state like the, the rigid, unoriginal and bleak place. In most cases, you do have the desire to learn, but because of the infinite list of curriculum requirements, you may never dig, dip, you may never dig deeper into the subject material. In order to redesign the purpose of school to revolutionize and embody the, the elements of a 21st century learner, you need three things, independence, determination, and exposure. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's quite surprising that if you're doing this for like roughly a year or, or less than give or take since the book went out in, in February, but yay, great at this. Oh, oh, where, can we, where can we see your poems? You mentioned that you're a poet. Yeah, so the poems are actually in the book because I think they were really big guiding forces in terms of me understanding my voice and understanding my stance on a lot of issues. So I have three poems in the book. I am colorblind and to be woman is to be human, but you can also find videos of them on my Instagram or on the internet as well as on my website. Okay, and what's your Instagram? Let me follow you right now. At Deb underscore Alatunji. Deb underscore Olatunji. Oh, as, as, as a Nigerian right now, how is the Nigerian culture in Delaware? Um, I think I remember we celebrate Independence Day, and that's around October, but I haven't met many Nigerians in Delaware. 
there's a really prominent group on my campus that is called Nigerians at the school. And so I'm really excited to be immersed in that because honestly, I've been around a couple of Nigerians, but they're, I don't think they're, there may be like two Nigerians in my high school out of a thousand people. So it isn't really prominent in Delaware. That's you? Yep. Oh, yep. how far is Delaware from Philadelphia? I know my cousin is in Philly. I think it's around an hour. Too much effort. I had initially planned on going to Wilmington University, but then I was like, nah, don't wanna, don't wanna. And then your president changed. I was like, hell nah. Back away, Satan. <laughs> like that. Oh, so this was a fun interview. It was nice talking to you. It was great speaking to you. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. Uh, by the way, um, do your parents like still give you chores to do? Since technically you're like a professional, an adult, so to speak, you still do chores. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yes, most definitely. I still have to take out the trash, wash the bathroom, do the dishes. I definitely still have chores. <laughs> uh, wow. My, my ultimate goal was 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 that if I was still in, if I was still a parent, that whenever I'm told to do chores, you know how most Nigerian parents keep like referencing that uh, I I'm feeding you, I'm clothing you, I'm paying the bills. Yeah, I, I'll be like uh, I also contribute to the bills. <laughs> like my ultimate goal to, <laughs> to like snap back to that that never happened since we like I just left the country. So like, oh no. <laughs> would you recommend that to I Nigerian parents? No, no, I would not. I would not recommend that to any Nigerian kids. Don't do it. <laughs> you could definitely work on building your net worth, but don't don't say that to your parents. <laughs> Damn. Like the best part of being successful is that. Uh, excuse me, I filled the power bill last week. <laughs> <laughs> Goals. <laughs> oh my god, it's just fun talking to you. Yeah, I really enjoyed the conversation and I'm very excited that hopefully we'll continue to stay connected and maybe have another conversation in the future. Yeah, when you go to college, let me know. So you can have, you yeah. can have one about the college experience. So I can like, yeah. put that and then what I've watched in the movie and see how is that matching up. For sure. Okay. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much.